lost deep in the pages of your Bible are the books that are unmentioned, unheard of, and unread. They are the forgotten books of the Bible. All right, welcome to your church friends podcast. I am Chris. I am Yurlich. And we got a new toy with us today. Yeah, it's kind of tripping me out. Me too. So uh, last week's episode, for everyone who heard it, we sounded like we were either in outer space or doing it remotely through a Zoom call or what have you. But we weren't. We were in person in our studio doing it. There was some sort of uh, malfunction between our recording system setup. And what was going on? I had seen it on my side. It looked different. I should have stopped it and reset it. But I was like, we're already talking. It's a great conversation. And we really need to get through the book of Jude. So uh, we thought the content was good enough to put out there. But it did sound like we were either in outer space or in a big old like auditorium or something. I feel like you just normally don't care when it's me that sounds off. Yeah, because you're just like, as long as you sound good. Because <laughs> it's like, I'm kind of, you know. So I, I, could, I do the editing, so it makes it easier for me to fix myself. And for you, it's just like, well, what can I do? Yeah, I know, because all the times when you say ridiculous stuff, it doesn't make it into the episode. No, it doesn't. And all the time I'm putting disclaimers on the... I took the last one out. You Chris, said, please remove please this. Please remove this, and I did it. But so we would end up uh, getting ourselves a Zoom P4 pod track, and we're going to see how this sounds for this episode. Hopefully it does a great job. Everyone said it does great in reviews-wise. It was up there as one of the top things. So uh, I'm looking forward to using it and not having our old setup. Yeah, I guess no one can see us, but it's weird because anytime that we talk, we normally just have the microphones in front of us because we've tried the thing. If you guys have ever seen a podcast recorded where people are wearing headphones and we tried that with our old setup and it just didn't make sense. But for this setup, it does. And that's what's tripping me out is because I'm wearing the headphones and I'm hearing myself in the headphones and hearing you in the headphones. And it's just making it hot in this room, so... It really is. Yeah. So we should get started. Okay. Yeah, let's jump into this one, because I've got a lot of notes and a lot of stuff to try to cover. I don't know if this is going to be two episodes. I was going to say, you know what that means to people now? Yeah. It's like, we're going to be camping out for a while. I, I don't know what happened, but like when we were talking before the show, the Book of Jude just did something to my brain, where all of a sudden, every book that we go through... So I feel real bad for Haggai, uh, Joel, Obadiah, and whichever one... Second Timothy, oh, not Second Timothy. Second Timothy was great because Chris Brown really came in and summed those up amazingly. But I feel bad for the other ones because I didn't have this lens on, like the way I'm looking at the books and studying it in a deeper way and like trying to find out, okay, what's this mean? What's that? But Jude just like opened up that door and it became different. So hopefully everything from here on out will follow that same kind of formula of giving a lot of information, a lot of information, and then, you know, following up with our nice little here's how we teach this or apply it to our life. I just show up after studying the book and I'm having a conversation with you. I was thinking about that. Like we're called Your Church Friends, but I was thinking about it. I was like, that's actually a really good name because in every sense of the word, you're my church friend. Mm -hmm. Like we go to the same church and we said plenty of times, like whatever we have in common for different stuff. And like, yeah, we found one, Dragon Ball, <laughs> right? There we go. But really it's just like, cool. No, you are my church friend and our kids like get together and hang out and different stuff like that. And we do some family stuff together, but it's like, no, you're my church friend. And when I look at the podcast, like, no, I'm getting together to just talk with my church friend. And there's other church friends who get to be part of the conversation as well. But yeah, so just don't start talking at me with your newfound <laughs> study <laughs> mode that you got going on. This is still a conversation. Still with a conversation. Friend, yes. But that's the fun part about it, because I know some of the stuff I'm going to bring up. You already know. Um, and it also will entice you to jump into the conversation as well. Yeah, I need that enticement. I just sit here quiet. Yeah. <laughs> as I have for the past however many seasons we've done. Anyways. Yeah. This will be episode 77, technically, or actually 78, technically. Uh, but if I remove some of the readings as not episodes, uh, we're probably around 72 episodes. So almost to that 100 where yeah. we barely figured out what we're doing. Yeah. Given the fact that we just got podcasting equipment in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, this ship was sinking, but we got it back floating. All right. The Book of Nahum. Nahum, also Nahum. Nahum. Which I've always called it Nahum, but as I was just looking at stuff and I was listening to a lot of stuff, I don't normally listen to many things when I'm doing studying, 
But this time I did, and I kept hearing people calling it Nahum. And I was like, oh, great, another one I've been saying wrong for 30 years. Um, Whom been saying Nahum? Whom? Really? <laughs> I couldn't resist. But I'm probably just going to call it Nahum because we'll have it as we go along. But Nahum the Elkishite. The Elkishite, yeah. So let's look at the breakdown real quick. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, we got God's wrath against Nineveh. 2 through 1 through 13. So basically, chapter 2 is the deception. I was going to say, when you said chapter 1, 1 through 15, I'm like, that's just chapter 1. Yeah. Uh, so chapter 1, God's wrath against Nineveh. Chapter 2, uh, the depiction of Nineveh's fall. And then chapter 3 is an interesting one. It's a, it's a mocking song. Uh, uh, what are those they call them? Like a funeral dirge. Yes, there it is, a dirge uh, for Nineveh. And it's actually like a celebration over the fall of Nineveh and its king rather than a lamentation. Yeah. So that funeral dirge, but it's for the city. Yeah. But yeah, that's chapter three coming in there. Uh, Nahum is just a fascinating little book. So our questions are gonna, we're going to try to tackle. Uh, hopefully in this episode, we'll see how many we get through if we get to any of them. Is who was Nahum? When was Nahum written? What do we know about Nineveh? And then the last one is how did Nineveh fall? So some fun little questions there to open up conversations. Right. And it sounds like, oh, those are four simple things. But when you were texting me earlier and you're just like, yeah, I was in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I was in this and that. I was just like, all right, what question is that falling under, Chris? <laughs> How are you going to yeah. get that in there? How are we going to squeeze that one in there? So uh, the book of Nahum opens up with a brief identification. So that's Nahum 1. Uh, 1. In the recording, I found this interesting. It said, the burden of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my NIV, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of visions Nahum the Elkoshite had. So uh, that, that I only bring that up because in my actual notes, I have... Uh, oracle refers to a form of speech or sometimes also means a burden. So I like that the Berean Study Bible did that work for us and says, like, this is a burden concerning uh, Nineveh. Yeah, as you were talking, I went into the interlinear to just like, wait, sometimes when there's a word in one translation, not in another, it's just like, well, they threw it in there to try and help it along. But yeah, the word for burden there is uh, masaw. And yes, it's there. The other thing I found interesting is that this is the only book in the Hebrew Bible that identifies itself as a book. Right, so whereas other ones, when we look at the prophets or, you know, anything, there's a general assumption that there is an oral history and that it's been, you know, passed down or definitely said by the prophet more. Like I said, this is the one that says the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And as we look at it called the book of the vision, it really seems like that was its first format was in written form as opposed to it, again, being said by Nahum and coming in. And the reason for that, and I know that we were talking about it before, is that it's really poetic within it. It's kind of like a collection of poems. But even when you're looking at those, it's really intricately written because it starts off and it has an acrostic. Yeah, so it has a, a broken acrostic. Right. And, and we do see acrostics within the Bible, so... Wait, an acrostic, that's what my pastor does on a Sunday, right? Yes, yeah. He takes the points and he spells a word with it. That's an acrostic? Yeah, I think for most of this stuff, though, they take the alphabet, right? The Hebrew alphabet and go through it that way. So we would see that um, there's a spot in Lamentations that it does it but and elsewhere, but probably one people are most familiar with is Psalms 119, because that goes through the whole Hebrew alphabet, right? It starts off with uh, the beginning and goes through. And that's from verses 2 through 12 in Nahum that we see this acrostic, and it's broken down. Or it's a, it's a broken one because it actually doesn't finish. Right. But we don't even get any of that in English. Because when it translates through, when it starts off verse 2, the Lord is jealous. It's like, well, our alphabet doesn't start with the. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're not seeing, oh, what it is that's happening here. So this is the levels of when you get into study and you see what's there. And it was written in a different language. And for as much as we've talked a lot about context with ancient people, there is also a lot to be said about the language and how that's being put out. Because a lot of times you, you see it like right in the beginning in Genesis, when you look at kind of the word plays that are happening there on different things. And a lot of times in Hebrew, a, a word will sound like another word. And, they've you know, they've got that going on. But this one specifically, when we've got this acrostic, and as you said, a broken acrostic, um, it just doesn't hit us like that in English because it's not there. But you brought up a broken acrostic. Do you have anything interesting yeah, so about that? The other interesting thing about the acrostic, though, in Nahum is that it uh, ends with the letter. So as where some of them are at the start, this one ends with the letter, even to make it more difficult when we translate it into our 
English writing. So uh, the broken acrostic was actually first uh, noted by a 19th century German pastor. It's always this 19th century Germans, man. Pastor, and hopefully I got this right, Fraunmeier of Rottenburg. Probably totally off. He's going to call in. Yeah, he's going to call in. <laughs> uh, but he was the first person to notice it. And what he noticed was uh, that it was broken, that it didn't actually complete it. So it's from verses 2 through 11, and it's there. Uh, one possible reason for this is that uh, that's just the way Nahum did it. Him and his editor, they just wrote a broken thing. The only thing against that is that's not generally what's found in the Bible when we get these acrostic writings like this. So Nahum's kind of a weird book in some of these areas where it doesn't really do this. One idea is that... Um, it was from an original like acrostic poem or psalm, uh, and it came from a larger work of Nahum. They took this and put this at the beginning of this book. Mm-hmm. I'd also um, studied that part of an acrostic, when you're looking at it, the idea of having a complete acrostic is even the idea of completeness. And with this being an incomplete one, it's even looking towards it starting off with the incomplete and then looking at the rest of the book as the completion to it. I don't know, just different concepts to it. But like you said, it's not exactly a known thing. It's just it's, something that's noticed. It's like, oh, that's there and it's different. Yeah, and as we get into it, we're going to even see that like Nahum is kind of like an incomplete story, right? So we have, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit further when we look at the history of Nineveh, but you have Jonah that goes kind of paired with it and then Habakkuk, which also is paired with it they're usually put together so uh those kind of complete the whole story of Nineveh from beginning to end I'm, I'm smiling because it seems like every time that we're getting into these books we're finding like oh there's a complementary book to go right. along with yes. it it's just kind of like read these together and I think that this is an interesting one because when we look especially at Jonah and Jonah is such a well-known story and when we look at you know Nineveh repents there and when we get into Nahum, it's just a completely different narrative that's happening with even a, a little tie in there, which, which we'll get to when we talk about it. But yeah, to put that and then with Habakkuk, like you were saying, it's um, read them together. Yes, read all three of them together. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's the way it kind of starts off. Then it has like two oracles uh, that follow chapter two and three, right? And the first one, like I said, is this kind of the talk about the destruction. And then the last one is this song that really isn't. A nice one. It's a celebration over their default. Um, but yeah, Nahum also, we were talking about the, the three books, right? Um, it's part of the Book of the Twelve. Yes. So the Book of the Twelve, we would know as the Minor Prophets. Right. Uh, so the way they had it back then is that all these 12 books were written on one scroll. They weren't separate or individual. Um, the scribes preserved these 12 writings on one scroll, and then the, that, that's how they became the Book of the Twelve. Uh, and the 12 are distinct compositions with their own unique his- histories and settings. They have been deliberately arranged and edited together in a single book. Uh, that's how it was generally known as for a long time. Right. And just for people to get an idea of the 12, we got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So... Several of those are familiar to this season. Yeah, I think almost all of them are going to be in this season. <laughs> yeah. I think we cover like seven of the Book of the Twelve. Uh, but I know in early Greek, uh, so in the Septuagint, they had Nahum appears immediately after Jonah. Mm-hmm. This may be because of the belief that Nahum serves as, a, like we are talking about, a complement to Jonah. Uh, Jonah's preaching produces temporary repentance in Nineveh, and then it's resulting in God's mercy. However, Nahum is judgment against Nineveh. I don't know why I have it in my mind and it's not in my notes. Was Jonah there 150 years earlier? Yes. Yes. So he was there like, uh, a century before. Yeah. Him, so it was written there. Uh, one example, though, of it kind of like maybe not being in the same order is from uh, the Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah. That book places Nahum prior to Jonah and Obadiah. So it reads... And the descent of the beloved into Sheol, behold, it is written in the section where the Lord says, Behold, my son shall understand, and all these things, behold, a lot of beholding, uh, they were written in the Psalms, in the parables of David, the son of Jesse, and in the Proverbs of, his, of Solomon, his son, in the words of Korah, and of Ethan, the Israelite, and in the words of Asaph, and in the rest of the Psalms, which angels of the spirits had inspired, in those which have no name written also. 
and the words of Amos, my father, of Hosea, the prophet, and Micah, and of Joel, and of Nahum, and of Jonah, and of Obadiah, and of Habakkuk, of Haggai, of Zephaniah, of Zechariah, and Malachi, and in the words of the righteous Joseph, in the words of Daniel. So so just because of the order that he yeah. ordered them in? Yeah, but that's the Apocrypha, so we don't do that. Right, exactly. Chris, pay attention to the Bible. <laughs> Read the Bible. But paying attention, sorry, I know this is going back to the conversation that we had last time, but I sent you that TikTok with the dude that had a first edition yeah. 1611 King James Bible. That thing was massive. That thing was cool. What did you, you found one for like 52,000? Yeah, it was, and that wasn't even the 1611, that was 1613. Yeah, that's not a first edition. That's not. But that had the Apocrypha. Yeah. So just going back to the early King James Bible had the Apocrypha included. Yeah, and it had it in there. And I, I think this one, the Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah, is looked at more as um, uh, not as... Part of that techno-apocrypha? Yeah. Would this be part more of the like pseudepigrapha? Yes. Okay. So it would be go. part more of that where it's like, okay, some people did look at it as heretical mm-hmm. in some things. But I just thought it was interesting that uh, as we're giving the history... Right. That sometimes Nahum doesn't fall in the same place. Like the books weren't always arranged the way we see them today. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move on. So wait, what was our first question? Who is Nahum? Uh, yeah. Uh, first, real quick. Um, I got some other stuff. We got to start with the first <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get to the first question. Uh, Nahum is, uh, is, when I was looking at it, when I was talking about like Nahum being weird and having weird stuff, it, it is kind of like the Bible's dirty little secret. And I, I read that somewhere and I thought it was interesting and I didn't understand why. Uh, but quotations from Nahum in the Old in the New Testament are really not there. Uh, there's one possible quote in Romans ten fifteen where Paul writes, "How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news." Mm-hmm. So we saw that in the beginning of, or we didn't. I, I was just remembering when you read it. Uh, but we see that early on is that it says uh, in chapter three, I think somewhere it says, "How beautiful." Three fifteen, it says, "How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news." Um, so Paul could be quoting from there, but he also could be quoting from Isaiah 52.7, which says, How beautiful are the mountains, are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Another reference is uh, Revelation 17.2, and that may allude to Nahum 3.4. Uh, it says, With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with wine of her adulteress. But that's really it, you know? Uh, one commentator said that the scarce usage of Nahum in the New Testament may indicate that Christians of this time viewed Nahum as unsuitable for use in public. So kind of looked at as the dirty little secret of the Bible. Um, and one example may be this in verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirt over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will plead your filth. And I will treat you with contempt to make you a spectacle. Uh, so part of God's judgment here against the city of Nineveh was pulling up the skirt so the nations would see their nakedness. In Leviticus, it's holiness code uh, to uncover someone's nakedness is to engage in shameful, defiling sexual intercourse. So this passage is kind of one of the reasons why they look at it and say, like, this is why Nahum wasn't really used so much in the other. Yeah, as we get into chapter one, we'll even see that, like, it immediately comes in as a very um, harsh mm-hmm. book, so to speak. Yeah. And it continues on that way. It really does. Uh, what I thought this was interesting, too. A part of that nakedness is someone uh, refers to it's a meta- metaphorical rape of, the, of cities uh, personified as women. So Ezekiel does the same thing when he mentions Samaria, Jerusalem. Isaiah looks at Babylon this way. But this actually may have been the experience of the women and the people there when Babylon came in. So as much as it is kind of like a metaphorical thing, uh, there's a lot of tradition that the Babylonians would strip and humiliate captive males and make them march naked back to their captivity. And it's also kind of like what the Samaritans or what the Assyrians did to the Samaritans when they took over there. And so we kind of see this now uh, flip of it that this is now happening or going to happen to them. And uh, I really like this. I read this somewhere. It said, violence sows the seed of its own destruction. Um, so there's that. There's, I have a few notes on that the church fathers never really cited it much either, so they really weren't into talking about it much. I think each of them referenced it one or a few times. And then you even look at like Martin Luther. He looked at it, and he embraced a historical approach in his interpretation but linked it to his own life situation. And Calvin um, offered details on uh, commentary Nahum and sums up the message by saying the ungodly 
whenever they harass the church, not only do wrong to men, but also fight against God themselves. So that's it. That's all I got for that part. Can we ask the first question? Now? Yeah, now no. we can ask the first <laughs> No, that was a really interesting background to it. And um, yeah, when you're talking about the lifting up and the uncovering the nakedness and just those uh, biblical it's a metaphor, it's a euphemism, it's a different way of saying something, even how you're saying like, hey, kind of this isn't talked about in public too much because yeah. of the way that it depicts things. It's there in the Bible. Let's answer the first question now. Who was Nahum? Whom was Nahum? Whom was Nahum? Um, he was the Elkishite. Yeah, good answer. That's who he is. Yeah, that's that's who he what is. it says. Yeah. And we don't get here, again, as we've gone through some of these different books, where it brings up who somebody's dad was and some of the lineage, or you get um, the reign of a king that's coming in and all that stuff. We don't get that here. We just get that Nahum was an Elkishite. And even when we look at um, Elkishite, and it's like, cool, so where does that mean that he's from? Even trying to garner, like, okay, what geographical area is this? It's not really known. Yeah, I have uh, four locations that people suggest. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kevin Cathcart suggests Alkush, a town that's about 24 to 25 miles north of, of ancient Nineveh. Uh, the location identified with modern Alkush, where Nahum's tomb allegedly is located. So that's one place. Uh, Jerome, in his commentary on the 12 prophets, proposes mm -hmm. a village in central Galilee called and again, hopefully I'm pronouncing Try it. it. El Sisai? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I also had it in my notes and I was like, yeah, sure. It uh, seems like it kind of would, it's kind of spelled the same, but there's C's and I's in there, but uh, it's somewhat I, similar to Elkishite. Yeah, yeah, I read that there's a, a well, an old well in the region called Ber Elkosh, mm -hmm. which would might be El Elkosh. So, uh, and then the final possible location is in southern Judah in an area around Begabar. And so, um, and then there's a J.P. Uh, Bossman. He believed that Elkash might have been intended to convey a symbolic meaning, like Nahum's divinely appointed role instead of a literal place. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of just because of traditions, people go with what Jerome had written. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's an, a, another one too. I missed this one. Uh, the location could be Capernaum, yeah. which means the house or town of Nahum. Nahum, yeah. So... Four options there. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, but Nahum's name itself means uh, one who comforts. Or compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I Just because we have to have the baby names in yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, the baby names. I saw, too, it could have been a shortened version of Nehemiah. Um, mm. Which then, as I started reading it, I kept saying Nehemiah or typing that in on my notes. Because is there just too many ends in this book? Nehemiah the Elkishite. Nehemiah, uh, Nahum, and Nineveh. And the like crossing in my brain as I was studying was just like wires were getting all kinds of confused. But yeah, uh, that's really all we got of him. I would say based off those, that first one that you said, because of where his tomb is, and we'll get to it, but I don't think that that's where he would be from. Right. Because it, according to, again, his tomb being there, it seems like he never came back from Nineveh and that he stayed there and that's where his tomb to, you know, the Arabs even revere it and stuff. So it seems like that's where he landed. I wouldn't really see that as a possibility of where he came from. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So that's who he is and where he came from. Yeah. So look, we're moving through the questions quickly already. Question number two. When was Nahum written? All right. I, you know, I was just thinking about, we haven't, I guess if anybody's listened to the book reading, then they've read through it and heard it. I just wonder, as we're talking about some of these situations that are scattered throughout the book, if it's making sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, this kind of happened over here, and this kind of yeah, happened yeah, over yeah. here, and this kind of happened over here. Um, so maybe we can piece together some of the story as we go along so that it fits in. Um, yeah, looking at just dating of it in Nahum 3.8, it says, Are you better than Thebes, stationed by the Nile with water around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the water? And just looking at Thebes was also supposed to be one of these impenetrable-type cities, but that it did fall, and that it fell around... 663. Yeah, 663. I think it's they look at 663, 664 for the fall of Thebes, which then, since Nahum references that, says that it could be as much as 662, literally talking about it right after it happened. Um, but then when it comes to it is prophesying the fall of Nineveh, which happened in 612. So it's a, it's a very small window. Yeah, you're looking at like 50 some odd years there between 662 and 612 that it could happen. 
Again, if you're looking at that Nahum is actually a predictive prophecy of what's going to happen, which means that it would have happened before the fall. Um, some people, you know, don't like the idea of there being prophecy in the Bible and anything. So like, well, it could have been written right after that then because mm-hmm. it happened and then Nahum wrote, wrote about it and just said that God did it. Um, I did read that too in, in looking things up of the wind that some people mentioned that it, it could have been written after as more of like a, not necessarily how you're phrasing it, like not the prophecy thing, but just kind of more of a, for future people to see what can happen when you disobey God, in a sense. Yeah, so like a commentary on yeah. God's involvement in the situation, which you get that with anywhere that there's prophecy to where you have the camp that says, no, the Bible has prophecy that happens beforehand that gets fulfilled. And then you have people like, no, there's no such thing. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, well, then you're automatically going to be over there. And that's a different conversation for a different podcast. But I would say somewhere between 662 and 612. Right, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Thebes. Is mm-hmm. that how you said? I was kept saying the bees. Thebes. Thebes. Uh, so that was an Egyptian city, and that fell actually to the king of Assyria. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, according to Kenneth Baker, this uh, constituted as one of the greatest feats in ancient history, uh, basically because, like you said, Thebes was such a fortified city that to conquer it, um, that was something that was never really done before. Yeah, when you look at... Man, how do you how do you condense, especially for me that's not that well versed, the history of Mesopotamia and Egypt? Um, so you have in northern Mesopotamia is where you'd have Assyria with Nineveh and Ashur, which was the other other capital there within Nineveh, and then south of that you have Babylon. So over there in Mesopotamia you have Assyria and Babylon, and then you have other things in the region that pop up and pop out like you have the Medes and different people that come in but you have Egypt and Egypt is just for anybody that knows history Egypt has just lasted forever right yeah and you just have that happening and while there's all of these different battles going on and you see if you're to see kind of the timeline map you see Assyria kind of growing and shrinking and growing and shrinking and all of these things happening and at one point it just ended up you have Assyria pretty much took over all of that region and then there's Egypt and the two are just powerhouses and then eventually you have Assyria go over mm-hmm. and yeah, through taking Thebes and taking over and Assyria took over Egypt. So at one point, looking at that map, it was all Assyria. They took it as far over as the sea. They had um, Egypt taken over it. And that's where Assyria is really, when you look at things, the first empire. They're the first ones to come in and structure with it going beyond more of like a city state. Because you had throughout history, these city states that would pop up and you had that. But Assyria made a proper empire of things and just stretched over, over that whole area. They were actually the first ones to come up with like the idea of having a standing army that could just go to war all year round. Like nobody else had ever done that before. And uh, Assyria really became the first. It was like the prototypical empire mm-hmm. of anything that came after it. It's just like, cool, you need to have these ingredients in order to be doing it right. There's an inscription that was actually found. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm not going to try to pronounce this city's name, but it was found in 1978, and it actually describes how the king of Assyria uh, in his conquest of Egypt and how he took over certain cities and everything, um, and that the pharaoh fled to Memphis and then to Thebes. Mm-hmm. So Memphis being the, I think, the northern capital and Thebes being the southern capital of Egypt. Uh, so he fled there, and that's where he ended up defeating him and, and ransacking the city. And, and in the words ascribed on there, it said he carried away booty heavy and beyond counting. Yeah. So that, again, just kind of describing what Thebes was. It was this big city. It was this huge uh, place. The Egyptians believed Thebes was like uh, was a, a sacred city built on the first dry land. And because of it, its religious activity and the temples associated with it uh, were considered the world's first greatest monumental city. So uh, Thebes was an important place. Mm-hmm. And, and in there was the worship of Amon. So he's the Egyptian uh, sun god. And then there was the temple of Amon. So in his temple, and this is just more of a nerdy stuff that I found was interesting. That was built for the Thebian uh, triad of uh, Amon, Mut, and, oh gosh, how do you pronounce his name again? Moon Knight? Kanchu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moon Knight. Yeah. <laughs> we were sending that, that uh, yeah. meme earlier. Yeah, yeah so uh, the three of them, this, the, it was built for them, for uh, Amon, Mut, and Kanchu. Uh, M-O-T, Mot? M-U-T? 
Oh, sometimes with the Egyptian gods and stuff, like you'll have it spelled one way yeah, or another way exactly. comparatively. Yeah. So uh, again, it was just there, and it was predominantly for these two deities. Uh, there was a uh, also sh- several uh, shrines to other gods there as well, including Ptah and Osiris. And then the renovations of the main temple began under Tutmos one and carried on by various pharaohs over a period of 1,300 years before being completed by Ramses II. That was Thebes, and I, and I felt like some of that history was important to bring in just because if you don't do the study of this great city and why when Nahum's saying, like, are you any better than the city that you conquered? You thought of yourself great. You thought of yourself being this big deal, and the same destruction that you just did, took to this city is going to come to you. What book was it? I remember bringing out the facts of it, I guess, but my brain can't recall the name of the city or the book that we were studying. But basically, that they were up in their rock Edom city. Yeah. So they're up there. And that's, I remember that's where they filled uh, Indiana Jones and all that stuff. Right. But they were so fortified. And God was basically like, yeah, but you didn't look up, did you? <laughs> like, you think you're fortified, but I can still get to you. And yeah, drawing these comparisons again for people then they would know like, oh yeah, that place that nobody could get to, but it got got. Yeah. God is saying you're going to get got too. Mm-hmm. Which is really cool looking at it in the sense. And again, go read the book. Uh, I don't know how much backdrop in time we'll get into some of these verses in this episode, but like chapter one is just the description as God being the divine warrior, right? That he's coming in and saying, I'm going to take these places out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And yes, another nation and army comes in and sweeps through, but like these are his divine instruments at some times. And we talked about it with Nebuchadnezzar, that he was looked at as God's chosen instrument who come in and take people out. Even when we look at Assyria, and I'll talk about it a little bit more, but even them taking out Israel, the, the northern half of it, mm-hmm. you know, it was their punishment for the sin that they had been doing. Yeah, and looking at that, so we talked about, or I brought it up a little bit earlier that you have Jonah which Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is this crazy, nasty place. These other gods that you're talking about and all this going on, definitely not God's chosen people. But Jonah knows something about who God is. And he knows something about, hey, if there's this call to repentance and these people repent, God's going to be gracious to them. And it really takes off Jonah because that's exactly what happens, right? And that you get Nineveh being given the chance to turn away and they did, right? And everybody from the king to the cows, everybody repented, and God turned away the anger. That was, we said, what, around 100, 150 years prior to this. But here, this isn't a message of, hey, God's going to come with his wrath. This is a message of, he's been patient to you Mm -hmm. up until the fulfillment of what that is, and now the wrath is overflowing right? It was simmering before and you had the chance to turn that off, but you didn't. And it's one of those things that as we read through the scripture to really wrestle with because God is a good God and God being a good God does mean that he has wrath against wickedness. And when he chooses to act on that, again, we've talked about several times of people getting all upset, like, oh, God's coming in and he's like bringing destruction into an area. It's like, I think that's some of the background, too, to this is to understand God judging Assyria. Assyria were brutal, brutal, brutal people. Mm-hmm. When you look at them as tribes turned into an empire, turned into this, and what the army was, and when the, that army went places, they were impaling people, they were flailing people. They were so brutal that even as they took over the area, the inhabitants of Assyria were like, yo were kind of too brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what caused some of the breaking apart is because people didn't like being a part of something that was just so brutal. And when you see that amount of wickedness and the, again, uh, when you have the worship of different gods coming in and all those rituals and just everything that came in, it's like, yeah, the fact that God was so patient with this kind of a people, that's amazing in and, it's, in and of itself. But then the fact that he comes in and does judge them and that that's really what Nahum gets at is that what is it? Verse three, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Mm-hmm. And I think that that verse kind of sums up everything that's happening in this book is that, yes, he gave you a chance to turn and you went back to your ways. And 
he is going to come in and correct this. As we've talked about the day of the Lord, meaning something of judgment and a correction, putting things to how they should be. Right. That actually takes us perfectly into question number three. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Yeah, I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> We're professionals. We're 70-something <laughs> episodes in. Uh, See, you got the Zoom thing, and all of a sudden I'm operating on a different level. A whole different level. Uh, <laughs> what do we know about Nineveh? And and you just took us through a good example of a lot of things that we do know about them, that they were um, a kind of a wicked people. I mean, uh, nearly every reference to Nineveh in the Bible, biblical literature, uh, it indicates some sort of evil or something about their impending destruction. You know, there's not much in it that says, like, the good about Nineveh, uh, I think, except for in the New Testament, where you have Jesus referencing them as, like, uh, yeah, so in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, 41, and Luke eleven thirty two, uh, Jesus tells them, the men of Nineveh will stand in judgment against uh, this current generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now one greater than Jonah is here. So the New Testament acknowledges Nineveh as a paradigm of repentance, and it also depicts Jonah's preaching repentance to the wicked as an analogy for the ministry of Jesus here on earth. Mm-hmm. But mainly other than that, um, yeah, they're not mentioned well. Even in Nahum, uh, verse 1 through 4, we have, uh, so I'll start at 2, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God, the Lord takes vengeance and is, is filled with wrath, the Lord takes vengeance on his foe uh, and maintains his wrath against his enemies. What you just read, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Kind of what you talked about, I think, in um, Joel or one of the earlier episodes we did where this is kind of like this is the summary of god's character Mm -hmm. like this is the john 3 16 of the old testament right um and then four he rebukes the sea and dries up the land oh wait i'm sorry i read the wrong chapter chapter three verse one no wonder why it wasn't making sense uh woe to the city of blood yeah you're saying two different things and i was just like well yeah he's not gonna leave him unpunished so there's woes i I got a point going with both of it i'll make it tie in (laughs) professional right after we get brett done bragging about being professional i screwed up pride comes before the fall there it is god is staying true to himself uh woe to the city of blood full of lies full of plunder never without victims the crack of whip, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears, uh, many casualties, piles of deads, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpse, all because of the wanton lust of the harlot, the alluring mistress of sorceries, who enslaves nations by her prostitution, the people by her witchcraft. So, I mean, right there, we're talking about the abuse of the nations. Kind of like you said, when they went in, they were just tearing people apart yeah and i've never been a star trek person at all so i could be talking no not i could be i am talking out of my understanding but i've heard um assyria and as the assyrians being related to the borg so anybody oh, who listens yeah to that's star, really cool who listens to star trek look <laughs> at how far off i am but that the borg is yeah, just like just a, a simulation yeah just run in take over make you part of what they are and yeah that's a really good analogy. That's what they would do even just like, hey, you can become an Assyrian if you join our army and, you know, just come in and, and bring them in. So, yeah, for anybody that that pop culture reference makes sense, that's still lost on me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But <laughs> y'all can benefit from that. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, um, they were extremely violent, like we talked about. They were opposing of God. In Zephaniah 2.13, it says, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. And this is God saying... Uh, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. And when looking at that, what you brought up in Zephaniah, and then also just here in Nahum 3, 1, woe to the city of blood. That concept of woe is just lost on us. We know Mm -hmm. that like, oh, it's a bad thing. But a biblical woe is, it's like a curse word. It's It's a really heavy word to use. and um i think in isaiah right when he's like woe is me um you know because he comes before god he's like woe is me that's like kind of an oh expletive like (laughs) i'm screwed here but when we see it used here of woe to the city and you get from zephaniah like hey it's going to be torn down and stuff is that when a woe comes on a city it's like oh it's not going to be inhabited anymore Nineveh, once it got torn down in 612, was never built up again, and it was never inhabited again, and it, the remains of it weren't found until like 1820, somewhere around there. So that was the kind of thing of people even doubting that this biblical place existed, but then they found it in 1820, and it's like, yeah, it was lost to history for, 
you know, that many, what, a couple thousand years or something? Yeah. But an interesting thing, even on those woes again, is that Jesus, going back to the New Testament, like you were saying, when Jesus pronounces those woes on those cities, all of those, none of those are around today. If you go or to that area, you can stay in Tiberias because Tiberias is the only city that Jesus didn't pronounce a woe on. Hmm. So a woe is a curse. So you had Jesus cursing those cities, and it's kind of like the fig tree that Jesus cursed when it withered away and it couldn't bear anything anymore. So again, this woe is like we look at it, oh, woe to the city of blood. Like, oh, that's a bad thing. It's like a biblical woe goes a bit beyond a bad thing to where it's like, oh, here's a curse being placed upon. It's, it's actually the um, opposite of blessed. Yeah. Right. So when we look at blessed, it's interesting because I, I feel like to the we, same extent we don't recognize how big a blessing is a blessing. Right. That's exactly where I was going with it. We kind of don't even understand that one properly. So we don't understand the woe. But yeah, it was talking about like complete destruction. This is a woe was like, it's, it's bad. Things are bad. Um, you brought up Jonah. Mm-hmm. So what we know about Nineveh, a lot of what we know can be also found in that book. I won't get into it anymore, but you got us into the story of Jonah. Other than I'll say this, uh, Jonah, and I read this in a commentary, I thought it was cool. Uh, Jonah was read as focusing on God's compassion and and Nahum on God's anger, with both focused on the city of Nineveh. Together, these readings highlight the true nature of the God of Israel, who is slow to anger, full of compassion, especially in times of trouble. So I I thought that was pretty cool to sum up how those two books go together. Going back to chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, and... Yeah, see, I'm pulling it back, that part I read earlier. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. There's where I'm summarizing it all up. Another way of looking at it that I came across in my study is that Jonah can kind of answer the question of, is God in control of nature? So kind of between the storm and then the giant fish and different stuff. And then Nahum kind of answers the question, is God in control of history? Oh, yeah. Because when you look at, yeah, these different nations doing different things, and as you said earlier, is that no matter what nation and they're coming in, like God allows things to happen. And I think we've brought up before that he even withholds judgment on certain areas where he's like, hey, their transgressions aren't yet complete. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna be patient with them for now. But kind of saying like they're pushing the limits over there, right? So yeah, God isn't just concerned with the Israelites. He's looking at everything going on and he raises kings up to power. He raises empires up to power and he's the one in control of that and what happens. Uh, regardless of what us prideful humans think are going mm-hmm. on at any given moment. Yeah. Uh, during so some other stuff, this is more historical things. At the time of Nahum, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So we're talking about both of them together, like Assyria and Nineveh. Well, Nineveh was the big powerhouse there. It was, uh, I think it was part of the major trade routes too, going from the north and the south and the mm-hmm. east and the west. So it made itself like a pretty prominent place. Uh, again, going back, relating it to Thebes. And then it was also Assyria was the imperial powerhouse that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So we find in 2 Kings 17, and is it Hushua? H-O-S-E-H-A? I'm I'm just like, (laughs) between how you said it and how you spelled it, my brain is just like, nope, not working. Uh, But it tells the story of uh, him being the last king of Israel that the Assyrian army went in there and then took him out and took him captive. And then they left some of the... um, I guess the, the poorest of the poor of people in Samaria, but the Syrian king did, what you're talking about, the assimilation, what they did was they also then brought in other captive people who are the poorest of poor and put them into Samaria. So this is why when we get into the New Testament and they're like, they're Samaritans, they're the, they're the worst of the worst, mm-hmm. it, it leads from this moment there. So they had already conquered them. And then we get into 2 Kings 18 to 19. And since I'm butchering so many names, I'm not even going to say the king of Assyria's name here. So I was looking at the Hosea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that guy. Okay. We'll go with that guy. Look at 18. (laughs) (laughs) So I know what king we're talking about of Assyria. Uh, But he begins his attack on Judah. And this is actually one of the coolest stories. So Hezekiah is king over uh, Judah at the time. And uh, the king of Assyria has already taken like uh, a city in Judah. So you're talking 1813? Uh-huh. Sure. Sennacherib. There's a couple different ways of pronouncing that I heard. Well, again, I was listening to things, so I heard some names, but yeah, Sennacherib. Sennacherib, that dude. Uh, he already took over one city. He's now moving forward towards Jerusalem and uh, on his way to attack Jerusalem, which is really cool. So he um, threatens them, and he even says, like, your God can't stop me. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're going to stop me. I'm going to come in here and take it. Look at all these other cities. They prayed to their God. They thought their gods were going to stop me. 
but they didn't. And Hezekiah is like freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. He actually goes to Isaiah and talks to him. Isaiah tells him, don't worry about it. You can find the story in 2 Kings and in Isaiah, I believe. You could find it as well. They complement each other if you read it together. Uh, but as uh, they're moving forward, God comes in and intervenes. And while the Assyrian army is sleeping, God kills uh, 185,000 of the soldiers. And Shanasherab returns back home to Nineveh. And so his campaign against them uh, stops right there. Which is really cool. Uh, later, there's... um. Sorry, when you say that God went in and did it, am I mistaken that an angel moved in and accomplished that? Yes. So... Not that you're mistaken, but yes, I agree. Yeah. 185,000 of these Assyrians, these Borg-like, crazy, brutal people, and uh, one angel comes in and does all that? Yes, you are correct. So we look at 1935. And it says, that night the angel of the Lord went in and put to death 185,000 of the Assyrians. Which, just to bring the story that goes on here as far as we have these empires on the earth, and obviously armies raise up and different things go on, but one of the truths that we keep trying to bring back around is our experience is more than the material. There is the unseen spiritual realm. God is real. He is a real king. He is a protector. He has his angels. He has his host of angels, right? And what he is able to do on behalf of humans, and that that's actually, sorry, I'm going to take that back to Nahum 1 that says, right after he talks about all that stuff that we talked about, that he's going to wipe away everybody and not leave the guilty unpunished. Then he says in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who trust him, who trust in him. And just that that's I think that that's just central, right? Mm -hmm. Is that in everything throughout human history, it's trust in God. He will see you through even an attack from the Assyrians. He will see you through. But if you don't trust in him, he'll let you get attacked by the Assyrians. Right. Yeah. I guess trying to get to God is central in these things that are happening. We also see, uh, so taking it back to Nahum 112, where it says, though I have afflicted you, I would afflict you no more. Kind of almost being... Uh, relating to what we just read in 2 Kings 18 to 19, so that the Assyrians attacked Israel and took them out. But when they came to Judah, it was, I won't afflict you anymore. So there was Shenesheribs, is that again? Is it right? Anyways, this prism, it was found. It was a prism. It's a hexagonal baked clay inscription of the annuals of everything that he's done, and it attests to the events of this campaign. Uh, it doesn't say that they lost uh, that many warriors, uh, but it does provide details of the biblical account. It says, as to Hezekiah the Jew who did not submit to my yoke, himself I made a, a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. The inscription reads, I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving the city gates. Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed, did send me later to Nineveh, my lordly city and then tribute. So the inscription provides the exact same thing of what the Bible says. I came to take out Nineveh I, or uh, Hezekiah and all that land. And even though he was afraid of me, which the Bible even said, right? He was terrified. Mm -hmm. uh, he sent me back home. So I, I really thought that's cool. I love when you can find historical things that prove what the Bible says. Which, honestly, it's kind of amazing that we even got that much because how you said that... Uh... He didn't quite say that he lost that many people or whatever. Is because generally when you're an empire and you're winning things or you're the one writing history, you don't write about the times when you fail. Like It's a just known thing throughout history that as we've discovered more of the historical stuff, it's just like, oh, that person said that they didn't lose. They very much right. lost. So the fact that he did say that he got sent home is like even bigger in, yeah. my, in my mind. Yeah, It really shows what God did there. So uh, takes us to question number four, and apparently we will wrap up this episode and make it a one-parter. Um, how did Nineveh fall? So how did they fall? We've got Nahum 2, verse 4 following. The chariots dash through the streets. They rush around the plazas, appearing like torches, darting about like lightning. He summons his nobles. They stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. Then here, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Her maidservants moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. 
Nineveh has been like a pool of water throughout her days, but now is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. But yeah, looking there at verse 6, especially that the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses because they're kind of invaded that way, right? Yeah, they, that's how... Uh, so there's kind of... Um, when I looked into it, there's two thoughts on it. That one that uh, when the Babylonians came in, they stormed through the gates. Another one says that the because where it's located by the Tigris River, that it filled up and flooded and it knocked the gate down and that allowed for the Babylonians to come in and conquer the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's the way it was looked at, the two ways I saw it. Um, all this, like you said earlier, happened around 1612 BC, right? That's when Nineveh came in. and uh, 612, yeah. Yeah, 612, uh, which is interesting because once uh, one of the kings dies in 627, that's when the Assyrians became weak through internal struggles. And that allowed Babylon to grow, take over, and they went in there. And yeah, they eventually came in and destroyed it and carried it off. Chapter 2, verse 5 is kind of interesting to me. He summoned his picked troops, yet they stumble on the way. They dash to the city wall, uh, the protective shield, it is put in its place. So uh, Nineveh had these two great walls uh, Mm -hmm. in them. And uh, I think they were called, uh, the outer wall was the wall that terrifies the enemy. And the inner wall was the wall whose splendor overwhelms the foe. And here you're seeing in 2.5 that uh, those walls got trampled down. They got taken out and they were just able to go in there and left the city. Once those walls fell, the city was defenseless. And then, like you said, verse 6 is uh, the, what I just said, that the city flooded over and that that's what caused a portion of those walls to collapse. So mm-hmm. these things that sometimes we as people put up and feel secured in, just like the Edomites, right? Our lofty, high above the ground thing is going to protect us, somehow get destroyed. Yeah, it makes you think of um, Jericho. Mm-hmm. Right, walls of Jericho, fortified city. It's just there is no fortification that can withstand God. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, even how you, you were saying these different ways that that took place. Even for Nahum to say in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, the shields of his mighty men are red, the valiant warriors are dressed in scarlet. From my level of study, that there was no army during the time that this would have been written that was dressed in red and would have done that, but that that is how the Babylonian army dressed. Right. So like he yeah. even like saw that they were dressed in red and they'd come in and do that, which again, that's where some people say, well, you can't predict that. That's just one of those things that shows that it was written after the fact. It's like, why can't he have a vision of what happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, basically, I mean, there's a little more history into it as far as they fell. Not much. It's just more describes the battles really that we didn't get into and everything that happened. But yeah, this great, Empire, like you said, the, the model of what an empire should look like, it eventually fell. And in, in such, and I'll get into this more in the next episode because it is the theme of if I were to preach Nahum, mm-hmm. is uh, we can't abuse grace. Um, that this city that was shown grace and somewhat seemed like responded to it, uh, then went back to their own habits and ways. And uh, where had God had used, like I said earlier, Assyria to punish and take Israel captive because of their sins, uh, then it flips. And then we get into what kind of what we've been talking about. The, the John 3.16 is Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Uh, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, uh, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes their, the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And here you have Nahum's interprets Nineveh's destruction as God's judgment on them. Yeah, I think to come back into it next week and kind of look at things from more of that perspective, that'll be cool. Because, yeah, there's so much to pull from this about who God is. And it's not the happiest of books, you know, to, to go through and to see when I'm reading this, I see that God is in control. And as you said, these different nations that come up and God using them in different ways. And I, to make the distinction that God doesn't make anyone evil. God doesn't desire that anyone would be evil. But even people who desire to go outside of and work against God still play into his hand. Like things are happening on a scale that we can't understand to where God is good. He's wanting people to repent. He's wanting people to come into the kingdom of his son and into love and into righteousness and everything else. 
But yet somehow on the grand scheme of history where you have nations, like not only is he dealing with us as individuals and like where we're supposed to be at, but then dealing with nations to where he's wanting this nation to turn and right for these groups of people to follow him, hence the Israelites, right? But then he's like, oh, well, they're not doing that. And there's this other nation over here and abusing the grace. That's where I'm trying to bring it is that God's grace protects us so much that when he removes that hand of protection and allows things in, like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, right? These things, it's not a good place to be. I find uh, the last two verses just be the most key thing about the talk of Nineveh, right? And it reads, uh, O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest, your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. And that uh, in Assyria, kings were called shepherds. Mm -hmm. And so this metaphor is also used in Israel, right? So Mm -hmm. like David, shepherd, and then there's Psalms 23 written about uh, the Lord shepherd, uh, which then gets taken into Jesus being the good shepherd. Uh, But the point of the metaphor is that the king takes care of his people as a shepherd tends to his flock. And Nineveh didn't do that right? They allowed all the other stuff. They wanted to, to just rule, like we talked about, being extremely violent. They abused other nations. They were opposing God, and they did all these things, and it, it was the downfall of their calamity. And I guess my point being more in the idea that trusting in an empire, we should understand that there's not a really a lot of empires that are going to have, I guess, your back the way God does. So this is why Jesus then, being the king right? Being our king Mm -hmm. is the good shepherd because he takes care of us like a shepherd should take care of us. Um, And then you get into verse 19, nothing can heal your wounds. So it's just completely wiping out the, that this is it. You know, the Syrian royal line is done. Like we talked about, there's not much of it. Uh, Nineveh, we didn't even know was real until it was discovered later, way, way, way later down the road. Um, But your wounds were fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you will clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And looking at that, I'll have more to say about it next time, so we don't need to, you know, really dive into it here unless it triggers something for you. But looking at the judgment that comes on uh, Assyria here, because they weren't part of Israel, they weren't living under the Ten Commandments and all those things, for as good as those are, and you know that they should have, it would have prevented all this. But the two things that it really seems like as an empire that they get judgment coming on them is that cruelty the level of cruelty and brutality and inhumaneness that they had and also just the greed and the money that moved in that when it's talking about oh multiplying the merchants and just different stuff that happened it really seems like those two things i don't know if you could say that assyria was ever in a good spot but those two things definitely amped up the wickedness to the point of god's judgment coming against them that the people around who were under their impression celebrated their downfall. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the, who would have known that Babylon would come in and be somewhat harsher? Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's almost like, uh, so this is why I say read Jonah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, because uh, Nahum ends with it like, yeah, everything's cool, let's clap, because, you know, Assyrians are dead, we're not going to have to worry about it. But then Habakkuk comes along, is like, oh, but there's Babylon coming, and that's not going to be better. But their cruelty was that bad that there was just a celebration, like almost like an upliving for everyone who felt it all. Like you said, this is an empire who stretched out and laid out the model. And if it laid out the model, it laid out the model of uh, how do we treat our people cruelly? We're going to treat them the way we want to because we're above them, and they're going to be our servants in a sense. Um, and then, like you, I think you talked about this earlier, uh, all this lays out is a good parallel for the day of the Lord. So the destruction of Nineveh can also be seen as the day of the Lord, where God wipes out this ruthless, evil empire and kind of resets things again for a time being. And then, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar comes, and it's part two. But uh, yeah, that's all I've got for the historical side of Nahum. I have one question that we won't know until after this episode finishes. Did our new little toy actually record this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it right now. I was like, if we say goodbye and then that SD card is blank, um, that'll be a shame because I've really enjoyed this episode. It's uh, faith and technology. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see in a second. But uh, hopefully, I'm Chris. 
Well, I am Chris. Hopefully you are, yeah. Yeah, but hopefully this gets recorded and I am Chris. And I'm Mirda. And we are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Nahum, Obadiah, Jude, Philemon, Haggai, Amos.